the idea that we have to humanize ourselves as black people angers me, that I have to make a film to show that these boys were human, that they were not the animals that they were being described as, that they had mothers and dreams and pulses and memories and hopes for themselves and families that were fractured and, you know, great violence was done to them, great trauma. Yes, it's a part of what we want to do, but I, I feel pissed off that I have to do it. So I owe a huge debt of gratitude to my guest today. A couple of years ago, one of my girls came up with this awful idea that a bunch of us should run a half marathon. Now, I'm not a runner. In fact, I really hate running. But to support my girl, I decided, okay, I'll run this half marathon. That, of course, meant I had to train. Now, I find running to be boring as hell. So to pass the time on the treadmill, I had to watch something that would keep me going. And one of the things I chose to watch was Ava DuVernay's documentary, The 13th, which is on Netflix, and it brilliantly explains why our criminal justice and prison systems are completely broken, and the prison system is, in fact, a modern-day form of slavery. Man, listen, I was so mad watching The 13th that I was barely winded after running five miles. I was that angry. So I thank you, Ava DuVernay, who joins me next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, for not only educating me, but being the main reason I finished that damn marathon. Ava, before we get started, I wanted to read you an email that you may not have had a chance to actually see for yourself. So my uh, co-host, Cole Wiley, who is the son of Ralph Wiley, who is, I think, in my mind, on the Mount Rushmore uh, sports writers, he is he is definitely on that list. Um, he was the first black person I saw on ESPN. He used to do sports reporters. Uh, he's written a lot of books, Why Black People Tend to Shout. And his son, uh, Ralph, unfortunately, this is the 15th year anniversary of his death, but his son is, is my co-host and also a filmmaker. And we discussed When They See Us on a previous podcast and broke that down. And it was really touching because he and I had a long conversation about what When They See Us meant to him. And so he wrote you an email, which he sees me on. And I just want to read a brief part of that um, because I'm sure you've been hearing so many experiences about how people have emotionally reacted to this work. So this is what Cole wrote. I know many people have cried, but let me tell you, I cried, cried in all caps. There's no form of art that I've ever experienced that has made me cry in that way. I cried like I never have before, and now I am thriving like never before. Part four changed my life. You, Jarrell, and everyone else involved with When They See Us changed my life. I cried for Corey Wise. I cried for Jarrell. I cried for all the young black men that have suffered injustice that has kept them from being who they are supposed to be, but mostly... I cried for myself. You made me realize that I've been living in a prison for the last 15 years, a mental, emotional, and spiritual prison that kept me from living my joy. Mm. So mm. I'm sure, as I said, you've been getting a lot of emotional reactions to wow. this work. Um, how are you handling that, that people just are having such a visceral reaction to when they see us? What it takes for someone to tell you how they feel about seeing something that you've done? 
I never take for granted. I mean, someone had to sit down, write that, express themselves either in writing or when someone comes up to me or even in a tweet or a post. That is a, a real thing that is hard to explain how it feels to receive. Uh, but I would just say it's like, you know, someone walking up to you and giving you a hug when you need it the most. And, you know, I didn't even really know I needed this feedback, but I guess I did because it feels really not good in an ego way, but good in a, thank God, what we put out there is being received in the way that we hope because it took a lot to do. And I haven't really talked about that too much. And I haven't done any interviews since the pieces come out. So um, this is an opportunity and I thank you for it to just think about all that. But I didn't realize how much I needed that quote unquote hug from people. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't realize how much I wanted people to really go as deep as they're going. I thought it would be respected you know, I hoped people would be would respect the piece and hear their stories, but this has become something else, and it's just hard to articulate the kind of chemical reaction I have when I hear an email like that, or when I see a post. Or today, um, I saw a woman had embroidered the poster on her jacket and had posted about just wanting to be connected to these boys and their stories. So like literally took the weekend and embroidered a jacket with their images. Like that is, um, <laughs> I mean, what do you say? What do you say to something like that? Except thank God. Yeah. You know? Well, I imagine shooting this was probably um, an emotional experience. What was that like for you? No matter how tough it was for me, it was it was tougher for the men who experienced it and their families. So we always just tried to keep that in perspective. <clears throat> so when, you know, I'm a filmmaker sitting here talking about it, it was 66 days to make four movies. I had this much time, this many resources. It was taxing. It was four years to research. You know, it feels like none of that matters because of what they went through. But yeah, it was it was it was a tough one to make for everyone involved. We were just on fire to make it. You know what I mean? We really, really wanted to tell their stories, especially when you meet them. And you know that they're living, breathing, you know, men who've survived this incredible thing. And you just want everyone to know. I just wanted to shout the story from the rooftops. And so I think that's why emails like that and posts like that really touch me. Because it's like you got up there, you shout it from the rooftops. And people opened their windows and they leaned out and they heard. And um, and so, yeah, it was it, it was tough, but worth it. Well, I mean, not that, you know, I, I do understand you don't want to compare what you may have gone through emotionally to right. what clearly they experienced right. that changed and, and in many ways destroyed parts of their lives that they can never really, they can never get back. But at the same time, I do know sort of like embedding yourself in that trauma could sometimes have an effect on you as well. So I just wondered if, if personally it was, you know, difficult for you to um, deal with some of this material because it is so heartbreaking in many ways yeah it, it, it is and I'm still dealing with it and kind of coming down from it so I seem to be the kind of filmmaker that uh, only makes things that have to run from the edit straight to the theater like there's been no film I've made where the deadline has not been oppressive like I'll talk to filmmakers and they'll be like oh yeah yeah we rewrap we finished three months ago it comes out you know in a couple months, be like, what are you doing in between? How does this work? There's been no film that I've ever made, Selma, 13th Wrinkle, nothing, where even Quinn Sugar, we 
the, what you see on screen like got finished the week before. And this is how this was. This was so, so just barely finished because Netflix has to take it and translate it into 190 countries, languages across those countries. So they need time with it. And so it was a big rush. We got it done. And then we went straight into you know, sharing it with people and promoting it. And I don't think I've really taken the time to sit quietly with it and just like cry. I don't know. You know, I feel like, I feel like I'm still holding a lot in and, um, and I need to take some time to just come down from it all. Um, because you're holding the stories of these five men and their families. You know, they've looked you in your face and they've told you these stories and they said, you be the, the, the keeper of these and you're responsible. And so, you know, it was just a, a big wait, and thank God they, they liked it, and they embraced it, And um, but, you know, I haven't put it down yet. How much were um, the Exonerated Five, how much were they involved throughout the process? Obviously, you had their story, you had their rights and all that, but as you were going through the shooting and stuff like like how much were they involved? They were pretty involved. Um, you know, one of the things is I said, you know, I'm gonna, we're going to sit down, we're going to go through these stories uh, for months and months, and then I'm going to take everything you've told me and all the research and everything that we've got, all the paperwork, all the transcripts, and I'm going to go with my team and write these scripts, and I will come back to you when I'm done. But before I lock, lock the script, you'll have an opportunity to tell me anything that I got wrong or anything I missed. Um, and so I did that. We went away. We gathered all their stories. We made it. Uh, we, we wrote it. And then uh, I gave it to them. And I remember one of them saying, I don't know how to read a script. I was like, it's just like reading a book. Just go open it up and start reading. What are these What are these things on the side? Don't ignore those numbers on the side. I thought you said it's like a book. No, no, just kind of do your best. And so they're reading the story in a script form that has stage direction. And then, and then Antron walks here and then his father throws, throws the chair and then such and such. And it's there. Imagine your story of what you did yesterday and someone's taking it and putting it in a script form. And then imagine the worst story of your life. The, 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 the thing that brings you to your knees when you think about the loss, the trauma, the tragedy, whatever it is. And imagine someone taking that and putting it into a script and then saying, and now I'm going to go make this with some actors you don't know and hope it turns out okay. You know what I mean? That's really what the process is. And the weight of that is so heavy to carry for them. Um, and for me, that it was a four-year period of just a lot of tension. Not that it was, tension's not the right word, intensity. It was intensity. It was like we were holding our breath the whole time. I know they were, and I was. So I wanted them involved as much as possible. I wanted to get their feedback on the scripts. I wanted them to be on the set. I wanted them to see the cut. I wanted them to breathe a little easier. Um, and when they breathe easier, I breathe easier. So the first time that you met all of them in person, what was that like? It was one by one. So I met Raymond Santana first um, because he tweeted me. Uh, he tweeted me in April of 2015 and said, uh, he had just seen Selma and said, what's your next movie going to be? CP5, hashtag fingers crossed. And his handle was Central Park 5. So I was like, oh gosh, this is one of them. This is, this is cool. So I DM'd him and I said, hey, I'm going to be in New York in a couple of months. Maybe we can talk. No one has your story. And he said, no one has a story. And I said, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll connect with you. Now I'm thinking, interesting person to meet. Like, I'm probably not going to do this. I really, at that time, did not think I was going to do it. I just thought, oh, I want to meet him. 
Um, and then I met him and he was charismatic and dynamic and was telling their story in a way that I was like, wow, I want to meet all of them. So one by one, I met them all. And, you know, you're sitting around f f across from Corey Wise and he's talking to you and all you want to do is reach out and protect him and amplify him and make sure he's okay. And part of that process was he wanted people to know what he'd gone through. Uh, so yeah, it was a, it was a interesting meetings with all of them and, um, they're all just so unique in their own way. And that was just something else I want to show. Like they're not five. They're not the Central Park Five. They are individuals that have their own way about thinking about this. And they really reflect, you know, the array of people behind bars right now and all the personal private stories that we never hear. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure, especially after the 13th, that you probably get pitched um, a lot of stories that are along those same lines. These are the stories I get pitched every historical figure, the first black firefighter in Cleveland, um, all the way up to, you know, the, the kings and queens of Africa. I get, <laughs> I get pitched, which I really want to do. I get pitched um, every courtroom drama. Okay. If there's black people on the stand and accused, I get pitched. Um, can I just get pitched like the cool love story? Like I would like to... I was talking to Malcolm Lee, like, I want to make, can I make um, Girls Trip? Yeah. You know what I mean? I was going to say, you I, need to make the black version of Bridesmaids. Can I, I make somebody. Brides, can <laughs> I just <laughs> relax and make something? And I hope so, but uh, one day. But yeah, I just, I guess I'm just drawn to these stories and I get pitched a lot of them in there, stories that need to be told. So I feel like I might tell a few more. Well, people are putting you in a bit of a box. I know Wrinkle was so much different yeah. than any of this stuff. Yeah. But do you feel like the people are putting you in a box because you're doing such all this heavy historical material? I don't know. I thought I thought I I thought that that would happen early on. That was a uh, was a concern for me that people were going to pigeonhole me that I didn't want to be social justice civil rights girl because I got a lot of you know great stories like that coming across my desk and so I wanted to do different things and. Whether it's Queen Sugar or Wrinkle in Time or, you know, um, um, a lot of the installations that I do, did something for the Smithsonian or, you know what, I'm going to make a video for Jay-Z and Beyonce. Like, I'll get out there and I do it. Um, but I'm still drawn to these stories of us. I feel like film is a weapon, you know, and this is a fight. This is a real battle for our lives and that um, it can be wielded in the direction of justice and of amplification of these things that we go through. And so I find myself just drawn to it. And I, and I care a lot less these days about pigeonholing and industry and all that stuff. I mean, early on, when I first got into it, that mattered to me. But now I just, I just want to make the things that I love and, um, and just offer them to folks, uh, you know, from the deepest places of my heart. That's why emails like the one that you read really, really resonate with me and move me. Now, I know you, you know, when you're filming, sometimes it's probably hard to predict how exactly something will hit. But what does it mean to you, the fact that as of the taping of this podcast, I believe when they see us, it's been the most watched series every day in the U.S. since it debuted. What does that mean to you? It's hard to grasp, um, but one of the things that goes straight to, comes to mind right away is access to images made by women of, women of color, by black women, by sisters. Like, really, I think if we analyze it, how many pieces have we made as black women that have reached that many people through the distribution of our work world, worldwide? I mean, very few sisters have had 
the privilege um, uh, and the reach, you know, so that's why these new platforms, you know, become really important to filmmakers like me. You know, even when I made A Wrinkle in Time, that was not internationally distributed. I mean, this this film is in 190 countries right now. And so I'm getting emails from the Maldives, from Guatemala, from Brazil, from South Africa, from, I mean, all over Europe of people, tweets, people um, talking about wrestling with this material and the story. That's, I can't tell you what that does to me as a filmmaker when I know that my, my white male counterparts have this more often than not, like a lot of them have it. Um, and to know that women like me almost never have it. And so to have it and to see the impact, you know, it's, it's, it's beyond words. Um, I, I want to talk in particular about ep uh, episode four because that's the one that broke me down. I mean, it was all, you know, the, the whole thing. Um, it was, I was vacillating between extreme anger <laughs> and it wasn't as if I wasn't familiar with the story, but I think when you see it all put together, it just hits differently because when it actually happened, I mean, I was a teenager, so I didn't fully grasp what was going on or understand, um, understand some basic complicated layers, but uh, the complicated layer of race. But I, it was a lot I didn't understand until I got older. But episode four, which is about pretty much Corey Wise, um, I think Jarrell Jerome, I, look, I don't know how the Hollywood machine works, but he needs to be nominated for everything because he was phenomenal in this playing him. Why did you pick him? How did you know this is the guy to bring this story of Corey Wise to life? Jarrell Jerome um, came to me through the audition process. I'd seen him in Barry Jenkins' Moonlight and thought he was great in that. But we were looking for boys to fill the shoes, the shoes of all of the five. And it was a puzzle because we, we would find a boy, but I couldn't find a man who matched him because these characters were going to grow up. So I find a great boy and then... God, but the man who is good, they don't look alike, and this is going to be weird. And so it was like a puzzle pieces. And then when it came to Corey, I remember what Corey Wise, the real Corey Wise, always told me. He said, Ava, my story, I'm not one of the Central Park Five. It's, it's four plus one. I had my own story, and it was a different experience. And so when I came across Jarrell Jerome, um, he was the one that I thought might possibly be able to play both. And the reason why is because I had seen him as a kid in Moonlight and had asked him to come in and read for the kid. He sends, he's, he's, he's taping a TV show at the time, so he sends me a tape of him reading, reading the script uh, and performing the script, an audition, as the kid, but he has a full man's beard on his face. I'm like, what the... Excuse, I didn't even finish looking at it because it freaked me out so much. He was being like a 15, 16-year-old bo boy, but he had a full-on beard. So I called my casting director, Aisha Coley. I was like, what is this? What's happening? Oh, he's in a movie right now. He's in a, film, a TV show, and he has to have the beard. I said, well, I can't get into him being 16 and having the beard looking like a grown man. When he's done with the show, if I still haven't cast the part, have him shave and, and tape again. So a month later, we still hadn't cast the part. He shaves, he sends in the tape. He's incredible. And I have him come meet me in New York, and I see him in person in the room. And I remember him from the beard, so I give him the sides. I give him the script for the older Corey, too. And he comes in. Now he's clean shaven, and he's doing the older Corey. So basically, it was the opposite. But it didn't matter because he was killing it 
every time, whether he was the kid with the beard or the older man without the beard, the essence of him was connecting to Corey in a way that was so, it was magic. And this is before he'd even met Corey. So it only got deeper once he met Corey and they spent time together that it was um, it was just the kind of casting that you you pray for as a director, especially to 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 carry the weight of a of a, of a part like this. Well, I imagine that it was twenty one. Oh, Jarrell Jerome is twenty one. Yes. Are you serious? Yes. Oh my god! How can you be able at twenty one? I was acting like that, huh? You know, at the club <laughs> trying to you know, I mean, barely making it, eating top ramen in the dorm room. Like it's twenty one. That is that only makes his performance that much more remarkable. I know it was done with intention. The fact that you wanted very much for people who watched this to understand these were boys. Was that always your mindset as you approached this story to make sure people understood these are young people we're talking about, not grown men, but young people who have presumably at that time who have their whole futures ahead of them? Yeah, well, because they were described in the press coverage at the time, if, if folks remember, as, you know, wilding thugs, animals, wolf pack. I, I remember I was in, you know, grew up on the on the West Coast. I'm from Compton there on the East Coast. They're from Harlem. But I felt connected to them. We were on the same age. And it was these boys were like a gang, like a raping gang of guys. You know, little do we know at the time, they didn't even know each other. Only two of the five even knew each other at all. They get into these interrogations. They don't even know each other's names. They don't know the way to pronounce the names. The police are feeding them names. And so the idea that we have to humanize ourselves as black people angers me, that I have to make a film to show that these boys were human, that they were not the animals that they were being described as, that they had mothers and dreams and pulses and memories and hopes for themselves and families that were fractured and, you know, great violence was done to them, great trauma. Yes, it's a part of what we want to do, but I, I feel pissed off that I have to do it. Like that, the, that like there's a whole part of this that's just basically saying we're human beings. These were these were boys. Uh, our children can be boys and girls. We're not instantly matured by the way that we're depicted um, in the press. You know, the school to prison pipeline that we're being groomed for a certain, you know, uh, uh, criminal future. Um, all of the things that really take the the innocence from our youth to have to assert that uh, you know the first five minutes of the piece is them just being boys just being themselves once arguing with his father over baseball once talking about wanting to make first chair in the school band you know one's flirting one's walking with his girlfriend and and one is is uh is you know just hanging out with this boy on the street you know that has to be there to be like, hey, they were boys, you know, these are just kids, remember this as you go. Um, it's a shame that it has to be done, but, you know, it's a big part of the story and a big part of what was stripped from them. Yeah, and I think, too, it was it was interesting learning more about their family dynamics as well. Well, a good thing that has come out of this is that all of them now have been able to, you know, really tell their own stories. You've given them a platform, and people are hearing from them really um you know, en masse for the first time. And one of the more heartbreaking effects was seeing the relationship between Antron and his father. There was a clip that I saw of the real Antron talking about how he never wanted to make amends with him after that, that their relationship was literally destroyed by this trial because his father wasn't as supportive during the trial. And 
he still blamed him for the whole reason that he kind of wound up in there because he told him to tell the police what they want uh, to hear. Uh, I'm going to play a, a clip from that right now. I don't know if you've heard him talk about this relationship. My father left the room with them, came back in the room. He just changed, cursing, yelling at me. And he said, tell these people what they want to hear so you go home. I was like, Dad, but I ain't doing anything. The police yelling at me, father yelling at me. And I just like, all right, um, I did it. Mm -hmm. And I looked up to my father. He's my hero. Mm -hmm. But he gave up on me. You know, I was telling the truth. He just told me to lie. Did you ever make peace with your father? No. Didn't want to. Hmm. My life is ruined. Why should I? He's a coward. When you hear Antron say that about how that destroyed his relationship with his father, I mean, what what does that personally make you feel, seeing how this still is very damaging for them even today? Yeah, I mean, this is the story that Antron told me when we went through the research for it. And so hearing his heart breaking every time he talks about his father is what we really wanted to show in this in this film, you know. Um, there's one thing to say, well, the father left the family, but it's another thing to really see how it happened, to see the moment of no return in the precinct room when the father um, asks his son to lie. And, um, and then to see the moment before that of why the father did it, why the father did it, hanging his own past you know, in front of him as bait, in front of him as a threat. Uh, these are the nuances that uh, we need to understand. We need to know how the criminal justice system works and that it is, it is, is um, not the right name for it. Uh, as, as, as my friend Josh Jackson said recently, it's, it's, um, there's no justice happening where you're playing family members against each other for political gain and for the end that you are manufacturing. And yet this is what has happened um, to these boys and their families. So what we just try to do is dig that apart. Like you get the, the, the headline, well, the father left the family. But what is in that? You got to unpack it. You got to open it up and take everything out to really see what's underneath it. And by doing that, you have a greater understanding of what people of color, black boys in particular, and black men are up against. And it's important to arm ourselves with that knowledge. And so that's why I just, you know, that's the reason why we do it. That's the reason why you want to go back and kind of, you know, pick at the scab of this because you really, really got to get underneath in order to heal it. You know, so Linda Fairstein, who um, was head of this case, uh, she has responded to When They See Us. Um, I thought, personally, it was really irresponsible for the Wall Street Journal to publish her op-ed about When They See Us because the facts are the facts, and they allowed her to continue to go forth with what we know to be an untrue story in which uh, she behaved not just unethically but inhumanely. So... What is your response to her accusing you of defamation, calling this a gross uh, dramatization, and, and making it seem like this wasn't a fact-based uh, piece of work? Yeah, I think you got it exactly right. I mean, you said it basically. It's it's how long are you, are you allowed to assert positions that we know are not true and try to pass it off as truth? You know what I mean? There's nothing that was said in the op-ed that was that was new. She's been saying the same thing for years. So it wasn't anything that wasn't unex 
wasn't expected. I expected that response. But, you know, just the idea that a space and forum is being given to, um, you know, uh, her personal views on the subject when space and a forum was not given to these boys and their families for 30 years, and they finally have got that platform to tell their side of it. And yet, um, you know, we're still giving so much attention to the same old, tired lies. It's done. The, the convictions were vacated. Vacated means it doesn't count. It's like it never happened. Like they're innocent and yet we know what was lost. And so, you know, the argument that, well, they may not have raped her, but they did something is, um, you know, speaks to the deep legacy of criminality and racial bias and racial violence that this country is built upon, um, you know, that on site, black men must have done something. You know what I mean? We look at the black codes. We look at loitering. We look at gym, loitering laws. We look at Jim Crow. We look at I me mean, on and on. Um, it speaks to that. And so <clears throat> the fact that that is, is continuing to get a forum and a platform and I have to keep getting asked about it, you know, is, is, um, is, is challenging. But like I said, not unexpected, pretty typical. You know, we, we did what we came to do. It's moving in the world in the way that we hoped beyond our hopes. Um, and, um, and so, you know, it's, it's done. I know that there will never be any measure of justice that can possibly be done to this, you know, situation. Because when, you know, as I mentioned, I did a previous podcast, just breaking it down just as a viewer. And there's no justice that can really be served because we don't know what these boys slash men would have become had this not happened to their lives. We could have been looking at a doctor or a lawyer, whatever would have been um, ahead of them. We don't know what would have what would have happened, which is why the justice can never be served. Nevertheless, um, there has been some consequences for Linda Fairstein. She was dropped by our publisher. Uh, I have to admit, I was not aware that she had even had a the book career that she had afterwards. Uh, Glamour took back a woman of the year. She award they had given her. Um, she's resigned from a number of charities. Does it give you any sense of, I don't know if relief is the word to see that even though this information has been out there for years to see that she has had to have some level of reckoning that has come her way as a result of, of what you've produced. Yeah, I think accountability is important, and so I'm glad that that's happening in a way now that it didn't happen before. I think the main thing that it's doing that I think is positive is it's bringing attention to this case and other cases like it, which is the goal. I mean, it's not just about this woman. I mean, that 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 it really isn't. It's been made to be that way and feel that way because it's the most salacious and it's kind of the sexiest headline and it's clickbait and it's all of that. But um but it really is is drawing attention to, you know, the function of prosecutors and DAs and their importance and the fact that in our local elections we control who our DA is and that these local elections do more and affect more of our daily lives where we live than even a presidential election election and that we don't focus on those. You know, uh, these are the kinds of things we're trying to show in the piece. So to get sidelined on, you know, this, you know, woman who, you know, did what she did and now she's having to answer to it um, is not really the focus of what I want to do, you know, and I, this is not what I want this to do. And I don't think when people watch it, they come away focused on her. I really think it's the press and it's, you know, it's kind of like, 
it's clickbaity. It's it's a good headline. She's the person that you can paint as the villain in this, but she's really not the villain. The system is the villain. And until the press and until, you know, people who are really um, charged to think about these things and lead these things understand that, then we're just going to keep going in circles, you know, with the same with the same old rhetoric and uh, lack of direction and, you know, a system that just continues to feed itself. Because of your uh, work, um I know that people often ask you very heavy topics and um, ask you about very heavy things. And I'm sure when people run into you on the street, they're probably telling you all kinds of traumatic stories because of the work that you've done. So I will make you a promise. The rest of this podcast, I will only ask you fun questions. Okay. And then with these fun questions. And when this is over... We're going to, you know. Go have fun? We'll, ha- we'll have fun. Okay. But we're going to get together and work out this whole black bridesmaids idea. Okay. <laughs> All right. So when we come back, fun questions for Ava DuVernay. Got it. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I read a story, Ava, about um, your friendship with Oprah, that she <laughs> she wanted to meet you. Um, and so she held a party, a Mother's Day party, just to meet you. And she thought by you having your mom there that that would help forge a friendship. Because I imagine when you're somebody like her, that making new friends is probably like a little weird, right? Or, you know, more awkward than people would, would imagine. But is that is that true? Yeah, I think I think for me, just in general, as we get older, it's hard to make friends, you know? Our, our circles get smaller and smaller, so then you put a couple billion dollars on top of that. And, you know, worldwide fame, and it becomes challenging to just, I don't know, meet someone. So she's not out at the club, not like I'm out either. <laughs> but, you know, she's not at the same social places or parties or whatever. I mean, who, who, who do you, how does she socialize? I don't know. We're not, it's just, it just is not going to, how does she meet new friends? And so she entertains like at her place and has like really beautiful parties and dinners and just brings people around her and into her space. And, um, and so she did that, you know, on Mother's Day and, and I was invited. I brought my grandmother and uh, it was just an opportunity. It's like making your own restaurant. You know what I mean? Or making your own, like, I don't know, whatever it is, where the way people meet. Um, and so that's how it was. I mean, when you think about you meet people at work or, you know, through friends or socially, you know, and you think of how much, I mean, she can't meet people at work. Everybody works for her. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? So how, do, how does it work? So anyway, I thought it was just really clever to say, you know what, I'm going to bring some people together that I like and might want to get to know better. And I was lucky enough to be one of them. How does that conversation with Oprah go the first time that you you meet her? Well, the way that when I went, that wasn't the first time I met her, but it was the first time that I went uh, to, to one of her gatherings. And I remember, all I remember is bringing, <laughs> bringing flowers, right? You go to someone's home, you bring wine or you bring flowers. I 
Brett, I spent more money than I had to get the most insane insanity. Like this is criminal that this even cost this much flour. Strapped it into my car as I drove from LA to Santa Barbara for this Mother's Day thing. My grandmother's in the car with me. Like the flowers were so big, they were a person. Like they sat in the back with the seatbelt. And I get there and I, you know, carry it and I walk in with this, I mean, monstrosity of flowers. And she says, oh, I'm so glad you're here. She greets my grandmother. You know, the butler comes out, takes the flowers. These are gorgeous. These are incredible. Come on back to the brunch. That was in the most insane flower garden that she owned in the back of her house that is like an acre of flowers. So at that point, I'm like, you know what? There's nothing you can give this lady. You can't even give her flowers because you're sitting in the in the botanical gardens, actually, behind the house. And that's when I just knew really early on, there's nothing you can give her except truth and friendship and just being a normal person. And so that that helped me just be more normal around her because up until that point I was acting really weird <laughs> what were you doing? just weird just nervous and weird and I remember I would leave her like I it was something that Mr. Portier had at his house and uh, I was invited to go with David Oyelowo who played Dr. King and someone so we went we're all nervous he's nervous to meet Sidney Portier I'm nervous to, uh, nervous to meet Oprah and we just acted like can they speak? Are they okay? Do they need special care? We didn't know how to talk, function, how to put our bodies, our arms. Like, do you put in your pocket? Do you fold the arms? Do you just, I don't know. I forgot how to eat at a table with utensils. Because they were sitting there looking at me like we were real people with thoughts in our head. We were not real people. We did not have thoughts in our head. And um, it was, it was, I acted like that for the first year of knowing A, year, a full year? A full Full, straight up. You think she ever noticed? A whole year. I don't don't know. But then about a year in, I get this invitation. And I think it was, let's have a normal environment with just a meal, with a lot of people, and like try not to act weird here. Right. Because if you cannot act weird here, then maybe we can be friends. Were there ever other super, I imagine there were other probably super famous people there too? No. No, There was okay. just people like me. Like just, no, she's the only, when you're in a room with Oprah, there's no, there's other, there's no one else famous. <laughs> <You're> so <right. laughs> there's no, it doesn't even matter. Everyone else is just chairs. So I'm trying to, uh, I'm People glad. in chairs. <laughs> I'm glad that you, you said that because I find myself being very awkward around, especially people whose work I love. So I don't know if you could tell, but like I was nervous when I first met you a little bit, but you gave me a hug. Oh, right? well, goodness. So you gave me a good hug that like got me in a, well, a good headspace so I can stop that's being kind. nervous. That's kind. I'm a fan. So I should have said that at the top. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, and so um, it is, I don't know how to act around people who are that famous. I, I told this story before in the podcast. I went to a soul cycle class in West Hollywood and Beyonce saying Jay-Z showed up oh, in my soul cycle Okay, class. that's a big one. Right? That's so, rough. I I have met them both before. Uh, Jay-Z, I'm totally comfortable around. It's Beyonce. I felt like a moron. I was just like, there's nothing coming out of my mouth that's making sense right now. I was like, I don't know whether to bow, to curtsy. Like, what am I supposed to do? No, all those are appropriate. (laughs) When I I am in her presence, I can't even say when I'm around her because that's disingenuous. You're not around her. You're in the sphere. You, you... She's a very, she's 
very sweet. She is. I just can't. I can't look at you normally. I just, because she's so much to me, like she means so much. And I just love her work that, and I love his too, so, so deeply. But it's something about her where I'm just like, do I look you in the face? No, let me look at your hands. No, that's weird. Wait, your hair. Wait, never mind. It's beautiful. I can't. Oh my gosh. Remember when you did this dance move? No, let's not talk about it because then I'm weird. Like, I don't know. And I, and I had to direct her. I directed her. <laughs> this is my worst directing job like literally because usually I have very clear ideas about where you should stand this is what I think this is about what do you think hmm, let's negotiate that how about this move the camera here I was just like action <laughs> do what you, you want didn't know how to tell her what to, to do no because what are you gonna tell her there's no idea I have that's now, better now which which video this, this? was family feud family I did, a, feud. I okay. did a whole like short film with his song Family Feud and she was in it and, and Blue was in it, Blue Ivy was in it and she walked out and I think she said something to me like, so what do you think of this? I was like, yep. <laughs> She's like, and should I move here? I said, D would you like to move there? Yes, I think you should move there. I mean, I was just a mess. Because, <laughs> uh, well, how fantastic. How fantastic to be living at a time where we have people like, you know, Oprah and Beyonce and Shonda and, you know, just these giants. People who in, in decades we'll still be talking about. And, you know, we, we get to enjoy their art in real time. Well, um, I do. There's a short list of people who I know I just probably would sound like a bumbling moron. Oprah's one. Okay. Prince was one, for sure. Sade is one. Yes, wow. Okay. And Beyonce. Yes. yes. Like, how do you have a conversation with Sade? I know. What well, are we saying to her? This woman disappears every 15 I know. years. She's great, though. She is. She's so great. First of all, amazing. Her, she sounds like her voice on the record. So when I talked to her on the phone, I'm like, wow. Okay. By the way, Best humble brag of all time. So you talk to Sade on the phone. Tell me more. I'm yes. all in. Yes. <laughs> she, I, uh, when I did Wrinkle in Time, the people at Disney, Tendo Naginda and all my friends there said, you know, who do you, who, who, who would be your dream to do the song? And I said Sade and cut to, they're like, well, here's, here's her email if you want to send her an email. I was like, wow, okay. You have Sade's email I address? Do. I do. Oh I have my God. Sade's email address. Like, is so, it something cool? Or is it like, at, is it like, oh, you have to tell me what it is. <laughs> is it like Sade at gmail.com? <laughs> you know how, how so many people of note just have their name at Gmail? That surprises me all the time, but hers is not. So, she... Um, it's probably Helen. I know it is. <laughs> Don't tell me, don't tell me, don't, don't tell me. Don't try, don't All try. Right, no, it's actually a really cool name okay. that you'll never guess. Okay. So she sounds like herself and she is spectacularly lovely and down, like real sister, like real uh, serious but light. This is my only shot at story I'll tell because I won't, I won't tell a lot of stories about her. This is one. I talked to her one day and I had a cold. And I was trying to get through, like, talk about what we were talking about. And she was like, what is, you know, what is, what's going on with your voice? I said, well, I usually have just a scratchy voice. She's like, no, it's different. It's different than now it has been before. Do you have a cold? I said, I, I'm really, really battling a cold. It went away. Then it came back. It's one of those. And she's like, okay, I need your address. I'm going to send you some things. Literally, a box comes with handpicked things. Con uh, what do you call it? Not a contraption, a, a, a 
potions and like, (laughs) that's all I can think of. Like basically put this with this, with a little bit of this, take it at this time and this should do the trick. So I'm in there trying to be the chemistry lab, you know, put everything together. And, you know, of course it worked because she's Sade. And, but to take the time to send me, like she hand wrote the instructions. She put it in the box. Uh, She's just a lovely, lovely icon legend. That's unbelievable. That may be yes. the best story I've heard this she's, year. She's just <laughs> unbelievable. She's just yeah. She's great. It's kind of like these women. They're just regular women who have done extraordinary things, and I like sharing those stories with people because they're just like us. They just did extraordinary things, and that means we can too. I like to assume Cherish Today was Chade inspired. Oh, well, in terms of title. of course the new the new yeah. series Cherish the new, Today. Yeah, yeah, for okay. sure. See, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Thanks. <laughs> Yeah, that I have to almost decompress from that story. I feel like I just made <laughs> it was her. a small story, <laughs> but no, how fabulous! Now, are you? Um, do you go through that? I don't know realization when you realize like who's a fan of yours. Have you been surprised by somebody who's like a fan of of yours, other than Shadé? I don't know about fans. I I just I, I I'm surprised of people who know my name and my work. Yeah, um, and I that guess and the, that often floors me. Yeah, yeah. So who is the most surprising for you? For me, it was it was President Obama and the First Lady. That was the most surprising because he's he was a big ESPN fan. Oh right, of so course. he used to watch the show. And the first time I met him, when he said that, I you know that's when literally every thought in my brain left left out of my head. Yes. And uh, when um, uh, Michelle Obama, when she gave me a hug, I'm still recovering. So. <laughs> And the second time I went to meet him in the White House, um, this was before Donald Trump took over. I remember hugging her five seconds extra long and saying, <laughs> you can't just stay. Like, we just, just crashed. Like, we wouldn't mind. Right. But is there anybody who you were just like, I, I can't believe they actually know who I am? I would say them. It was them. I would okay. say them. I would say them. I would say them. There have been a lot of things. Like, you know, when a, Bono. Bono's, I mean, you know, I was like, what? You know, Prince. Um, But definitely, you know, the Obamas have a, not a mystique. They have a, they're everything. And so at the time where, when we were invited to the White House to show Selma and he introduced the film and then sat there and watched it with some popcorn and no, none of us were watching the film. Everyone was just watching him eat popcorn um, for an hour and, a, and over an hour and a half. I was like, wow, yeah, look at that popcorn. Like that's all. <laughs> Nobody's all, watching the movie. No, no, no one's watching the movie. We're just like, he's here. Um, and she is just, you know, the epitome of grace and style and every picture they take is fantastic. Like, all the cast got to take pictures, right? But everybody that was there. So when we looked at all the pictures, they were perfect. Like we all looked jacked, but they were perfect. And I was like, weren't they moving? Weren't they reacting and being, they were being totally normal, but they've got it down. They've got their elegance and their, I don't know, just their royal vibes down pat. (laughs) Well, what I don't want in my obituary is the, the fact that they had to tweet about uh, Trump. What I do want on my obituary is the fact that I drank Hennessy in the White House. That's what I want on my obituary. I think this is yes. good. Let's make notes. <laughs> For anybody out there listening. <laughs> Let's make notes. Who's note. in on the plannery, planning of my funeral. Oh, gosh. That I really want that to be uh, you know, made good. note of when it I is, die. It is good to know. In Obama's White House. That needs key, to be Very key. Will there ever be, will we ever, it will ever be. Nope. 
Okay, but but he's going to be out at some point, right? Yeah. And then there's new people in. Yeah. But, God, aren't we lucky that that time, not that we both got to be there because we're, there are a lot of people listening who didn't, but we all lived during that time. Yeah. I mean, we, we saw it. We saw it. We felt it. I mean. Yeah. No, oh. it is it is always going to be uh, special and more importantly, uh, historic. So, um, wrapping up here, uh, you were once interested in journalism. Right? Yeah. How, yeah. Did we, how did we lose you? What happened? <laughs> the OJ trial. <laughs> really? OJ trial, yep. I was an intern on the OJ Simpson unit uh, for CBS Evening News, and I was um, assigned a juror, so I had to sit outside a juror's house. You know, and that's kind of when news started to take a more tabloid turn, you know, uh, and I just wasn't for me. So I, I can't be looking through nobody's trash can. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I did not all like that. About, but I, when I read that you once were interested in journalism, yeah. I was like, man. Yeah. But, you know, I guess it kind of worked out for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it's a little little bit of just the storytelling and the truth telling I try to put into my stuff. So, so it's still there a little bit. Did I deliver on the fact there were only fun questions? This was very fun. Okay. Thank I just you. I want to make sure that I did. Um, and speaking of fun, I usually close out this podcast with a very fun segment, you know, raved by audiences nationwide. <laughs> and okay. the final segment is coming up. You guys know what it is. Fuck it, I'm bothered. That's next. Whoa. All right, so you guys know how we close every episode of Jamel Hill is Unbothered with a fuck it, I'm bothered, which are just things that, you know, I'm fucking bothered about. That's the way it goes. So look, we all know on any given day that Twitter can be a sign that the apocalypse is upon us, right? I swear to God that Thanos, he should have snapped his damn fingers on us Father's Day weekend because in the span of 24 hours, OJ Simpson joined Twitter and Bill Cosby wished everybody a happy Father's Day. So fuck it, I'm bothered by not only those two fools, but all the folks that are still following them or just started following OJ. Because as of the taping of this podcast, Bill Cosby has 3.4 million Twitter followers. OJ, who joined Twitter, as I said, over the weekend, within days, he has 680,000 Twitter followers. I'm just wondering, is Twitter going to actually verify him? But that'll be a conversation for another day. Now, I'm guessing Bill Cosby wasn't tweeting from jail. But for somebody in his camp to think it was a good idea to not only tweet a happy Father's Day to all the fathers, but to have the audacity to within the tweet to say, hey, it's America's dad. You're a serial sexual predator, sir. You are not America's dad anymore. And OJ, why are you joining Twitter? What good could ever come from this? And it also didn't take long for OJ to be up to some fuck shit basically on Twitter. So it was already bad enough that in his first tweet, which was a video that so far has been viewed by 11.3 million people, he said, quote, I got some getting even to do. Is this an SNL skit? Uh, why is he trying to act like we don't know that he didn't murder two people? But it gets better, though. OJ then on his third tweet decided to clear up those rumors that him and Kris Jenner, Mama Kardashian, had an affair which produced Chloe. 
Take a listen to this shit. Never, and I want to stress, never in any way, shape, or form had I ever had any interest in Chris romantically or sexually, and I never got any indication that she had any interest in me. So, Chloe, uh, like all the girls I'm very proud of, just like I know Bob would be uh, if he was here, but the simple facts of the matter is uh, she's not mine. So, Jesus, if you're listening to this podcast, please fix it. Please take the wheel because we clearly don't deserve to have anything nice. Stay unbothered, y'all. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify. And Denise Holly is the program manager. I'd also like to thank Ava DuVernay for joining me on this podcast. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. 